The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 9. I want to let you know, if you don't have a Bible, we have cases of Bibles. We buy them on purpose because when we're out uh, doing outreach, we like to give them away. Uh, but also, we want to have them here. If you don't have a Bible to follow along uh, and you need a Bible, we will give you one for free. We don't want anything from you. We just want everyone to have a Bible. If you don't have something right now in your hands with which to follow along, the verses will be on the screens for you. Okay? Praise God for all that. We're going to continue uh, this week in our journey through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, The series is titled, Our Story Begins, because even though the Bible is first and foremost God's story, he has mercifully included humanity in it. By studying these first chapters of the Bible carefully, we're getting the chance to have the big existential questions for all of humanity answered. We're learning where we came from, why we exist, how we should live, and where we are headed eternally. Uh, Whether people are aware of it or not, we all have an inner yearning to have those questions answered. And we're really getting to kind of laser focus, see uh, how the Bible and how God answers those questions through this beginning of the Scriptures. Uh, Last week, we saw God establish his covenant with the whole earth, signed with a rainbow, uh, that never again would the earth be destroyed by a global flood. I'm stoked on that covenant. Glad that one's in place. Uh, We also dove into the very conspicuous presence of blood throughout the scriptures, learning that this is pointing to the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. That's the way John the Baptist referred to him as he approached the Jordan River, the Lamb of God. Um, So this week we will see just how quickly, after all this close interaction with our Creator God, Noah and his family are distracted and drawn into foolishness. Okay, so we're going to read Genesis 9, uh, verses 18 through 29. Here we go. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from the whole earth, from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away, so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Praise God for his word. Uh, I wasn't going to, but I'm going to start off by just letting you know there's there's a lot of scholars and theologians that put this set of scriptures in, in a bucket with some others that basically, this is hard to interpret. <laughs> there's some weird stuff in here, okay? So... Just want to let you know that off rip because we're going to talk about some possibilities on certain things and I just want you to know there may be some varying opinions, but we're going to do our best to just stick to the text. Okay, so let's look at verses 18 and 19 together. 
Uh, that's where it says, Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Now this is a great example of why our series is named Our Story Begins. Because when you see that the whole earth was populated from this one family, it shows us again that we all share the same family history. Actually, next week when we break into chapter 10, we're going to see that's a genealogy that shows the different ethnic groups that sprung from these few people. And if we had accurate records for this far back, we could all trace our lineage back to Shem, Ham, or Japheth. So this really is our story. This is, this is where we came from. Uh, I'm kind of hoping that one day, you know, Ancestry.com or one of those other services, they'll get it all figured out so we can send in a cotton swab that we spit on and find out, you know, am I a Hamite, am I a Shemite, or am I a descendant of Japheth? Uh, they don't have quite, quite got that figured out yet, but I'm, I'm hoping. Although in the meantime, I'm sure uh, BuzzFeed or one of those other goofy sites could ask you some random questions like your favorite animal, your favorite song, and you know whether you like grape or strawberry jelly, and then they could tell you, uh, you know, which one you descended from just based on those questions. So in the meantime, we'll have to come up with that quiz or figure it out. But uh, I, I just think it's cool, and we've emphasized that. That's why we called Gran Noah Grandpa a few weeks ago. We're trying to really weave into you this idea that when you read Genesis, this is not some disconnected, antiquated literature that doesn't apply to you. This is our story. This is where we came from. This is how God did what he did with the people that went before us. And uh, you, you, got a, you got a great, 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 great grandpa up there somewhere uh, in the line that's either Japheth, uh, Ham, or Shem. So that's, that's pretty cool to me. Uh, verses 20 and 21 says, Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. Okay, here's where the story takes a bit of a left turn, right? Um, we got Noah, the man of faith. I don't know, is he hitting a midlife crisis and now he's acting like he's on an episode of Patriarchs Gone Wild? I don't know. Up till now, it wasn't like this. Uh, I mean, this guy who exhibits some of the most profound faith in all of the scriptures, building an ark and floating around on it for a year, I mean, gives 100 years of his life to build this thing, to just obey God, that guy ends up getting drunk, getting naked, and passing out, okay? This <laughs> is weird. Uh, so what, what do we see here? The first thing this shows us, we need to be careful of, friends, this shows us no matter how faithful we've been or how long we have walked with God, we still need to take every thought captive every day and submit those thoughts to the truth of God's word. We still need to wake up every day and clothe ourselves with the armor of God that's given to us in Ephesians 6. The moment we think we've graduated beyond the potential of being tempted to go sideways stupid is the very moment we let our guard down and we open ourselves up for a sucker punch from the enemy. Now, the particular way that Noah sins here brings up a subject that really needs to be addressed in our modern moment, and it's also a subject that people like to argue about and get offended over. So, everyone take a big, deep breath and buckle your gospel seatbelt, okay? You're going to need it. It's going to be fun. Uh, as a matter of fact, I don't, I don't do this very often, but I, I want, let's just pray something right now. Do this with me. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Let's, let's all lift our hands towards heaven. I want you to pray this after me if you believe it's right, okay? Only if you believe it's right. Don't repeat anything you don't believe. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray a prayer, and if you believe it, I want you to pray it too, because we're going to need God's help. 
Lord Jesus, help me not be offended by the truth of your word. If you believe that, go ahead and pray it right now. Help us not be offended by the truth of your word. Sometimes we need help with that. You know, if, if you have a proper understanding of who God is and, and who you are, if you have a humble estimation of God's place and your place, then you should fully anticipate to run into some spots where God disagrees with you. You understand that? Does that make sense? It should. God should disagree with you every once in a while. If not, you're probably worshiping an idealized version of yourself, and that's problematic, to say the least, okay? So, how did Noah sin? How did Noah sin? He got drunk, right? And then he starts humming the tune to that song, It's Getting Hot in Here, and, and gets naked in the tent. Loses his mind, okay? First, so first of all, this sin is pretty easy to see. Most people know the Bible says not to get drunk. In Ephesians 5.18, it says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Proverbs says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and those led astray by them are not wise. And, and this is pretty straightforward. Uh, and Bible-believing people tend to agree on the fact that getting drunk is a sin. Uh, but when it comes to alcohol at large, this is about the only thing unanimously agreed on, is that getting drunk is, is a sin, because the Bible says it very plainly. Uh, I think one issue we have in our current cultural context is the creation of a third status that the Bible really has no recognition of, okay? Uh, many people see the description here of Noah getting drunk, and they think that it's, it's the bar that must be reached for sin to have occurred, right? They, they'll say, well, you know, I didn't get naked and pass out, so I wasn't drunk, right? Maybe they wouldn't say it exactly like that, but there's some idea they have of, how bad that looks in order to have sinned, okay? Uh, people have created terms that you can't find in the Bible, like tipsy or buzzed, to describe the effect of alcohol on their minds and bodies. Uh, again, what I'm saying is you can't find those words in the Bible. In the Bible, you've got drunk or not drunk, okay? Uh, listen to these words from Proverbs 23. Some of you are already going, is he really doing this? I'm doing it. I'm excited about it. I believe where the spirit of the Lord and the, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and, and the truth of God set, sets people free. So sometimes there's there's a path of offense through that, or sometimes you got to rough people up a little bit. Uh, but I'm trying to do the same thing God's trying to do, which is is get everybody free. So uh, I'm not worried. So this is Proverbs 23. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down at the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink." This helps us see the truth about every boundary that God puts in place. When God puts a boundary in place, they are never arbitrary or without good reason. He's always protecting us from harm and pushing us toward good in whatever he commands us to do or forbids us from doing. That's the truth about everything God has commanded. Proverbs here, it talks about your eyes changing, your thoughts changing, your coordination lessening. Basically, being drunk is 
far before you're blacked out and naked, okay? This makes determining how much is too much before we are sinning with alcohol pretty hard to do. Some people, when they really think about the blurry nature of this line, they decide it's not worth it. The hassle's just not worth it. And we got to think that if Noah, who seemed like a pretty solid follower of God, can be duped by strong drink, then maybe it is not worth messing with. Now, that's not the only way to see it. However, I will say that this was the apostles' reaction to marriage when Jesus taught in Matthew 19 that God's view of marriage and divorce was much more narrow than theirs. Basically, they were under the, the mosaic assumption that, you know, Basically, if your wife burned the dinner, you could give her, as long as you gave her a certificate of divorce, you're good. Right? As long as you gave her paperwork, you're straight. You can just send her on her way. That was basically, it was, it really, Jesus was real ticked off about it. That's why he talked about it a lot and railed against it, because it was absolutely not God's intention. So when God said, no, 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 let, let not man separate what uh, God has brought together, uh, when, when he really teaches what, how, how narrow the, the godly view is of, of how important marriage and, and covenant is, the, the disciples... Uh, in Matthew 19, they answered that, well, then who then, should, who then should be married? When Jesus actually taught what God said about how deep covenant really goes, the apostles were like, hold on, man. <laughs> who would get married then if that's true? That was, that was their response. And I think sometimes, sometimes people haven't got to that response about certain things because maybe nobody's told them yet that, like Jesus had to tell those guys that day, that maybe God's view of it is a little more narrow than yours is. Uh, there are Christians who believe drinking alcohol at all is a sin. There are those who believe consuming a small amount of alcohol within biblical parameters is permissible. And there are those who have perhaps, without knowing, pushed beyond biblical boundaries in the way they deal with alcohol. So, remember the prayer we prayed, because there's going to be a chance for everyone on the spectrum to get offended today, okay? I, make sure, I always make sure I'm an equal opportunity offender, okay? So I'm going to get everybody. It's going to be good. So I'm gonna, I want to read an entire chapter of Scripture to you. And this, this, it's not something I would normally do, but I, I'm doing this because this subject is so rife with strong opinions that I want to let God's Word do the heavy lifting. Okay, So if you are better able to follow along by turning there, then go to Romans 14. If you're better off just listening, please do that. When I say better off, I mean what, which way are you going to retain and follow along better? Because it's very important. I'm asking everybody to pay very close attention to the Apostle Paul's inspired instruction here in Romans 14, okay? So I'm going to start at verse 1 of Romans 14. Here we go. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, 
As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things are indeed clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is not good to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Okay? Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I heard a lot about vegetables and meat in there. Here's the deal. The issue of the day, and this, this all goes in the bucket of issues of conscience, which is the principle we're going to talk about right now. The issue of the day, big deal, was meat sacrificed to idols. There were certain Christians that were freaked out because that meat had just been on an altar to Baal or whoever, and they thought, there's no way I'm eating that meat. Probably they came out of pagan roots, so that was very real to them most for the most part. Uh, but there was other Christians that when they got done with the, the sacrifice of the bull to Baal or whatever they were doing in the marketplace, they would take that meat and sell it at a discount. And some Christians were like, yup, I like meat. So it's cheaper, and I'm about to get down with that, okay? So that's basically the issue that's being discussed. You had, he says, the one with the weaker conscience, and, and don't get hung up on that. Basically, one person's conscience did not allow them to eat the meat. One person's conscience did. How do they relate to each other? How do they treat one another? How do they think about one another, and how do they proceed, okay? Uh, that was the issue of the day, but in verse 21, let me read that again. It is not good to eat meat big issue of the day, or drink wine, apparently also an issue of the day, and I would say a far greater issue for us today. I haven't heard any of you squabbling about whether or not you should eat meat sacrificed to idols. Maybe I'm just out of the loop, but I don't think it's a big issue for us, but I will tell you what is an issue for us here in Cincinnati, Ohio. He says, it's good not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles, okay? Um, I, I realize it's, it's nationwide, it's, it's worldwide, but we have... German roots here, and the alcohol flows like the salmon of Capistrano, okay? So it's, it's a big part of the culture here, and it's something we need to deal with. Yes, that was a dumb and dumber quote. I am in my mid-30s, okay? Hallelujah. All right, so what Paul does is he groups drinking wine to be guided with the exact same principles he just taught us, okay? Before I forget to say it, Write this down. 1 Corinthians 8 backs this up. It's another set of verses in case you're like, you're cherry picking. Okay. Go to 1 Corinthians 8. You'll also find some help in 1 Corinthians 11 on this issue. Okay. If you care about what God thinks about this, some of you are already offended. Great. That's good. That means I got your attention. If I got your attention, check out 1 Corinthians 8. Do some reading. Ask some people. I'm happy to have this conversation. Talk to your community group leaders. Ask other Christians. I realize... 
I'm, I'm kind of grinding the axe here with, with many of you, and probably all of you to some degree, but that's on purpose. Um, it's, it's good for us. So, all right. So for those of you Christians, those of you Christians who think drinking alcohol at all is a sin, okay, here's your chance to be offended. I'm letting you know right up front. Here it comes, okay? Verse 10. Uh, says, hold on, I got to go back up. Hold on a second. Here we go. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Okay? You cannot judge your brother. Friends who think drinking alcohol at all is a sin. You cannot judge your brother for consuming alcohol within the parameters the Bible has given. And you are going to have a very tough time scolding Jesus in eternity since he made several dozen gallons of very good wine at the wedding feast of Cana. Okay? I also want to say this to you, Christians who may think that drinking any kind of wine, and I know you've probably heard some dude somewhere tell you, well, the wine at the feast wasn't alcoholic. Sweet baby Jesus, can you please just, just read the parable and listen to the language that's being said. The, 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 the master of the feast says, wow, you saved the best wine for last. Most people serve the good wine up front, and then they bring out the stuff in a box at the end because... Why? Why would that matter? Just the time lapse? No, it's because after you've drank some of the good wine, your taste buds get dull and you can't tell the bad wine is bad, okay? That's the whole point. Absolutely, there was alcoholic content in the wine Jesus made, okay? Any other interpretation of that is, just does not make any sense. Okay, so throw that away. All right, um... Based on this, I'm still talking to you that think if alcohol touches the lips of a Christian, you know, they might as well cast themselves into Hades, okay? Based on what you know from the Gospels, if Jesus walked up to a drunk person on the street and a Pharisee who felt superior to the drunk person because of his man-made rules and religion, who do you think Jesus would deal more harshly with? The Pharisee all day long. So why, why did I just say that to you? Is that so I can excuse being a drunkard because, you know, I want to be or something? Nah. It's because I care for your soul. And if you're being a Pharisee about this, you're in far greater danger than an alcoholic in terms of how it's going to go between you and Jesus. Okay? Say amen right there. That's a, that's a good point. Thank you, Pastor Vince. That was a good point. All right. Now, I do want to say this. Paul is clear in these verses that for some people, whether because of conscience or tendencies for addiction or abuse of alcohol, drinking any of it may be a sin. For some people, that may be true. He clearly teaches that in Romans 14. And we need to understand that. And that means people on the other end of the spectrum need to not look down on those folks. Uh, and I'll probably end up saying that again. But uh, we, we do need to make sure that's true. If you come out of a past of addiction, if you've got genetic tendency toward addiction, if you're somebody that uh, just cannot stay within those biblical parameters, you know it always opens up the door for sin to you, you absolutely probably should not touch it. And you would be in that set of, of people of a conscience that says, no, that is not permissible for me. And to that I say amen. Okay? So there's that. So now, for those of you Christians who have gotten sloppy with the way you practice Christian liberties, here's your chance to be offended. Ready? 
<laughs> All right. Noah's sinning with alcohol that day was not limited to the fact that he got drunk. That was a sin. That was an issue. But his actions also opened the door for his son Ham to sin as well. And this is the stumbling block spoken of in verses 14 and 15. Let me read you that one more time. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Now I know Paul's not necessarily known for pulling punches, but there was no punches pulled on that one. That's the plainest language you can possibly put out there to understand that your actions, your lack of care in the way you do certain things can absolutely have an effect on another person. And the way God thinks about it is, basically, if, if, that's, if that's your buddy over there trying to run his race with Jesus, you're throwing cinder blocks out in front of him to trip over. And there's other verses that talk about Anybody causing one of these little ones to stumble would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and be thrown into the sea. This, the language here is severe. The language anytime that's discussed is severe. And it's, it's, it all comes down to walking in love. Okay? Now, you also cannot look with contempt upon the person who, guided by their conscience, abstains from alcohol or any other matter of conscience. So verse 10 applies to those of you as well who understand that uh, the idol means nothing, or in this case, that uh, the Bible does not prohibit, you know, straight up black and white, the consuming of alcohol for the Christian. Um, But I just do want to say this. I want us to notice something about his language here. Paul speaks of the one who believes it is a sin and the one who doesn't with the same language. What's he say? They're brothers. He calls them both brothers. We need to understand that there are certain things that can be a sin for one person and not for another. And most of us are very tempted to have the lenses on of our own background and experience, our own struggles, and we like to project onto other people our conscience. And that is a sin. That's what I'm saying. Like the, almost the greatest... The greatest potential sin in the whole thing is not necessarily getting drunk, but it's doing that. It's projecting your conscience onto other people like a Pharisee, making your man-made set of rules and religion have to be for everybody. Now, does that mean drunkenness? Does that mean uh, being sloppy and using different words for being inebriated, thinking you're tricking Jesus? Does all that not matter then? No, absolutely not. But I think oftentimes in Christian culture, uh, we would miss the sin of pride of those that either don't drink alcohol or feel like they're very controlled in it and, and looking at other people and, and deciding that they're doing better than them and walking around uh, thinking that, you know, they're the bee's knees. Um, Jesus doesn't play about that, okay? You can't be prideful about this stuff. Uh, we need to understand that Something can be a sin for one person and not a sin for another. That is the whole point of Romans 14. 1 Corinthians 8 is talking about matters of conscience. Some people's conscience is, is going to be at a different place. And it, it isn't a sin to have a sip of an alcoholic beverage, okay? But for some people, it might be. That's, that's what 
Paul's saying. If you think it's a sin and you see somebody else doing it and you let that make you think, oh, wow, well, that, I don't want to be a loser or have a weak conscience or whatever, and, and you, just, you just press through and, and do that, but really in your heart, you really don't think that's right. Whether it's just for you or at all or whatever, you've sinned against your conscience. And what Paul's saying on the other end is, you, those of you that have the stronger conscience, you need to understand that that actually exists. There are people that are having that struggle, and you need to care about it, and you need to be more careful oftentimes than you are about how you partake in those liberties. That is what he's teaching. You've got to walk in love. So understanding that, that's a lot harder than just saying nobody do it ever. Okay, I've known pastors that, and a lot of times it's pastors that came out of uh, alcohol addiction themselves, stuff like that's part of their story or part of their family story. And basically, the way they teach it, the way they say it, it's flat out nobody ever touch it ever. Just don't do it. It's a sin. And then you've got people on the other end of the spectrum, it seems like, and this seems to be more and more common, it's like, Everything almost centers around it. Like, since the culture centers everything around alcohol, we'll just do that as the church, and it'll be great. Everybody do it. Tap a keg. Woo! You know, so it's like you've got these two opposite ends of the spectrum. Neither one really represents what the Bible teaches on the subject. There's a gospel center, and we need to find it because it matters because Proverbs says a lot of people end up getting led astray by this stuff. I knew it'd be quiet. I told you everybody would be offended. I think I've just about got everybody by now. See, I'll keep going. I'll, if you're a holdout and you've been happy with all this, I'm going to get you here. Hold on. I got something for you. But isn't it a lot harder to understand that conscience dictates the fact that it might be sin for one person, not for other? What does that mean? That means there's not... We, much, we prefer legalism whether we admit it or not. We really do. We would much rather give me black and white, a line to walk, don't cross over this, that's it. Because that's easier. That doesn't really take any dependence on the Holy Spirit. If it's thick black lines, I just walk in the lines. Woohoo! This takes a, a serious dependent upon, dependence upon the Holy Spirit's help to navigate. This puts us at the feet of Jesus declaring, Lord, I need your help to navigate this. I need to know in my own heart where this really stands. Where is my own conscience about this? I need to understand that this means I need to press in, have conversations with other people, and let your Spirit help me understand where they're really at about it as I think about whether or not I'm going to participate in certain activities around them because I don't want to be someone that puts a stumbling block in their way, it's, it makes it real complicated. But it's the way the Bible teaches it, and it means we need the Holy Spirit's help. This takes prayer and, it's, and, and seeking the guidance of God's Holy Spirit. Now, some of you might be tempted to, to start screaming legalism at me. What I'm saying is not legalism. Most of the time, I'll give you a caveat, like, well, maybe I am, because, you know, we're all trying to hit the gospel center, nobody hits it perfectly. Maybe I'm being a legalist today, and I just don't think I am. I know I'm not today, and here's why. Because legalism would be to tell you, okay, if you're somebody that has a strong conscience, and you know that, a, you know, there, there is, uh, drinking alcohol within certain parameters is permissible, according to the scriptures, then what legalism would be to say, okay, if you're going to drink anything, you can only have one. That's the rule. That would be legalism. That would be me taking a principle of, okay, we're not supposed to get drunk, and then trying to figure out a way to make a man-made rule to make sure nobody ever gets drunk. Okay, so here's the, here's the rule, Love City. You only ever get to have one. Why is that legalism? It's maybe a good principle. That might be a great principle. But it would be legalism if I tried to take that and put it on par with what Scripture says. Scripture doesn't say have one. And here's why legalism never works. Here's why it would not work. Because even if I did that, even if I had enough 
relational influence over everyone here, which I do not. But even if I did, that, that if I said that, they were like, okay, well, Pastor Vince said it, so we're only ever going to do one drink. Well, that would last for about 10 minutes, and then you know what would happen? People would just start buying bigger containers. That's how legalism works, right? Eventually, people would be sitting in front of a fishbowl filled with margarita mix going, it's just one, you know? That's, that's what happens with legalism, man, every single time, okay? I have a dear friend of mine, a friend I love very much. They, they were a part of... They're in a certain faith tradition for a long time that, that has determined that the Bible has said women should only wear skirts, okay? And it's a modesty issue. Uh, and that's really what the Bible actually says. The Bible actually says dress modestly, right? Just, could you please just not show off the goods? That's, that's really what the Bible says about dress. Dress modestly. Don't put a stumbling block in front of the opposite sex with the way you dress. But same principle. Think about walking in love when you decide which clothes to put on and how much fabric they have. Okay, that goes for men and women. But this certain faith tradition has decided that what modesty means for women is always wearing skirts. Here's how legalism works. This person told me you'd go to like their collective conferences or whatever, and you would have girls in skirts that look like they were vacuum sealed on or like painted on, right? So they had a skirt, man. They met the qualifications. But it was like, you know, way worse than any pants could ever possibly be. That's what happens in legalism. That's why legalism doesn't work. Our nasty hearts will figure out a way to hack around it every single time. It's got, to, it's, it's got to be a love motivation, love for God and love for people that drives us to figure out what is the real truth here. And Holy Spirit-led obedience, that's what, that's what God's calling us to. Not give me some arbitrary rule that I can follow. Even though most of us would prefer that because we think it's easier. God, I hope this is helping you. It's helping me. Uh, the, point, the point is really found in verse 15, 16, and 17. I'm going to read this to you again. This is from Romans 14. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love, would you please let that smack you in the chest like it should? If, if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love, do not destroy with your food. And remember, he coupled the drinking of wine with what it's, he's talking about what we're doing in terms of these things, these conscience issues. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Did you understand that that's a possibility? Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. And what does that mean? Does that mean you get on a high horse and just defend yourself all the time? No, it means you conduct yourself in such a way that it doesn't end up getting spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Friends, here's what it comes down to. When Jesus saves us from slavery to sin and death, when we offer our lives in return as a living sacrifice, we no longer get to simply ask, what is permissible? We always have to ask, what is profitable? And I don't just mean profitable for you. I mean profitable in terms of what... How does that matter for the kingdom of God, for the good of others? How does it matter for the mission of walking in love? That's what this all comes down to. Amen. All right, we're at verses 22 through 24. Uh, Noah's drunken strip down was not the only sin that day, right? So let's look at these verses, 22 through 24. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. 
And their faces were turned away, so they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. Now, I want to just say this because you may go study some of these passages on your own, and you might run into it. Um, so I, I want to address it. Uh, elsewhere in the scripture, the term uncovering somebody's nakedness is used to describe sexual contact. So some have said they think Ham did more here than see his father naked. You understand what I'm saying? I don't really want to describe it more. That's, that's what some theologians say. So, And they also point to the language of verse 24. It says what his youngest son had done to him, okay? And this is how some explain Noah wakes up and he ends up cursing Ham's son, Canaan. Like he, he wakes up and blows up over this thing. That's what some have said, okay? I personally don't see enough here to suggest that based on everybody I read, all of the perspectives I looked at in, in my own study. I don't, I don't think it's saying that. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think the passage makes sense even without that being the case, okay? Hope you're tracking with me. Uh, and like I told you at the beginning, several scholars and theologians have said this is a really difficult passage to interpret exactly what in the Sam Hades is going on. So uh, I believe the sin of Ham here was in the way he dealt with his father's sin. Okay, um, In the original Hebrew, there is a connotation that when he ran out there and told his brothers that he was almost giddy. Like he enjoyed giving the news to his brothers that his father had sinned. And this is a very big deal for two reasons, at least. Proverbs 17.5 says this, He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. There is a disgusting human tendency to revel in the sin, struggle, or failures of others. And it is most often the result of insecurity. Let me read you Something from Proverbs 24, this is verses 17 and 18. It says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, or the Lord will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. Connotation being then, his anger is coming towards you. You understand? Now, if this is true of those who have made themselves our enemies, and I say it that way because according to the New Testament, people that follow Jesus are supposed to be, as much as it has to do with them, be at peace with all people. So I'm assuming if you have an enemy in your life right now, it's just because they won't reconcile with you because you're doing everything you possibly can to be at peace with them, right? That was real encouraging. Good. I'm talking fast. I'll just give you a pass, okay? Uh, if it's true of those who have made themselves our enemies, then surely it is true of those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, that we can't rejoice when they fall or when they stumble. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Now, we don't know if Ham and Noah had relational tension that led up to this. We don't know if Ham was jealous that Noah was a man of faith who found favor in God's eyes. Uh, we don't know if he got charge of putting, you know, we don't know if, if Ham got stuck in charge of cleaning up all the animals boom boom on the ark and he was holding a grudge. We, we don't know all the emotional baggage that led up to this. But whatever the reason, he was somehow, for some reason, glad to see his father stumble. And this is unacceptable to the Lord. If Ham was insecure for some reason, he had lost this truth or never understood this truth. And this is something we all should remember because we all, to varying degrees, will be plagued by the lie of insecurity from time to time. Insecurity is not remedied. 
by bringing others lower. It's remedied by lifting God higher. I'm going to say that again. Insecurity is not remedied by bringing others lower, but by lifting God higher. Now, you'll notice a distinct difference between what I just said and what a lot of self-help, blah, blah type junk out there today will say. Because most people would just tell you, well, just think better about yourself. Here's the problem with that. If you're any kind of honest, you, you can summon up some good thoughts about yourself, but you're still going to be aware of that gaping imperfection on the inside. If you've convinced yourself that you are perfect, then, then there's, <laughs> that's a mental condition. I'm, and I'm not trying to be funny. There. Uh, that's the reality. So just trying to constantly talk yourself up, that, that's, kind of a, that's, a, that's a never-ending kind of zero-sum and, and most of the time losing game. Here's why insecurity is remedied by lifting God higher. Because the, the more glorious God is to you, the more his love for you decimates a corrupted self-image. If the more glorious God is to you, the higher God is in your estimation, the more his love for you will be a constant, just warhammer crushing the lies that would cause you to be insecure. How do, how do I see that? Well, we, we have even less of an excuse now because the gospel has been fulfilled in the work of Christ, right? Jesus let his perfect sinless blood be shed to purchase us away from the taskmaster of sin and death. I know I've used this example before, but I, I can't come up with a better one. If, if you were an artist and you painted a painting, who determines the value of the painting? Is it the painting or is it the artist? And Jesus has already declared your worth. Jesus has already said how much value you have. What is it? You were worth him shedding his blood which is the highest amount of currency that's ever been paid for anything. The perfect, sinless blood of Christ. He traded himself in all of his majesty, in all of his power, in all of his eminence. He traded himself for you. Nobody's ever paid anything even close to what Jesus has paid for you. And so when you struggle with insecurity, the higher you see Jesus, the higher you see God the Father, the more glorious they are in your estimation. The fact that they love you and the fact that Jesus gave himself for you will be the strongest antidote to the poison of insecurity. You won't be tempted to then go try to push other people down and make yourself feel better for a minute. Is that right or wrong? That's right. Amen. Romans 14 teaches that Noah didn't walk in love because he put a stumbling block in Ham's way. And Ham didn't walk in love in his response to his father's sin. The whole issue here, it comes down to missing the mark on the most important commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We've shortened it. We say it shorthand here at Love City, love God and love people. The whole calamity here, the whole issue came down to Noah not walking in love, because through his drunkenness and his sin, he opened up the door for his son, Ham, to end up sinning against him. Is that right or wrong? If Noah would have stopped chugging the wine, would Ham have ever come in and disrespected him and, and went out and told his brothers gleefully about his dad's nakedness? No. Because Noah wouldn't have been blacked out naked in the tent, would he? No. The whole issue comes down to not walking in love, which brings us back to, surprisingly, not actually, the focal point of Romans 14. 
Now, how, I said Ham sinned in the way he responded to his father's sin. God has revealed what a loving response to sin looks like. So I'm going to sh- just show you what that act, what should Ham have done? Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, pause. Did Noah sin against Ham? It's a fair question. Uh, Noah was between 650 and 750 years old at this point. He got drunk and naked and Ham looked at it. Did he sin against him? That was a joke. He's really old and he got naked. And his son had to look at it. You guys okay? Everyone okay? Is there a carbon monoxide leak or what's going on? It just hasn't reached me yet? That was better than you act like it was. Okay. Yes, Noah sinned against him, if for no other reason than that. That's nasty, okay? So what does Matthew 18 say? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What happened? Ham skipped step one. He didn't go to his father himself. He ran outside with a smile on his face. Dad's drunk and naked in the tent. <laughs> And, and the Hebrew gives you the, the, the connotation that for some reason, Ham was happy about that. We don't know why, but God is not happy about that. Galatians 6 says this, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Ham did not follow a loving track of dealing with his father's sin. He should have covered his dad up, kept his mouth shut, and when Noah woke up, he should have said, hey, dad, can we talk? I think there might be an issue. Hey, dad, let's pray. Let's ask God for God's help because clearly there's an issue here. He didn't do that. Ham reveled in the sin of his father, and then he ran and gossiped about it instead of covering his dad up and approaching him later to lovingly call him to repentance. We must seek freedom from the lies of comparison that could convince us to enjoy, even in our hearts, the struggle of another. I know some of you can keep your mouth shut, but you're over there with that little grin on your face about somebody else's struggle. God sees that too. Proverbs made that clear. And his anger will turn from that person to you, and you can't afford that. (laughs) And I can't either. We are supposed to mourn with those who mourn. We are to lovingly call the wayward to repentance, not gossip about their struggles under the guise of concern. Now, some of you on the other end of the spectrum, you would never call someone to repentance. The Bible says clearly that judgment begins within the household of faith. It is, it is absolutely a loving action to notice that somebody's slipping and to take them by themselves first and to lovingly and gently try to restore them, to lovingly speak truth and grace to them. That is a part of Christian responsibility one to the other. And many times people abdicate that responsibility because they're afraid of awkwardness above all else. They would, they would, they would rather eat a scorpion than have an awkward conversation. We need God's help and strength to not be that way. We need to quit being cowards. Because a lot of people are rushing headlong towards destruction and there's people that are supposed to be their friends that are watching. 
And even if they're not happy about it, if they're complacent about it, they're complicit. That means they're guilty. We having fun yet? Anybody left not offended? You made it through this whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. All right. (laughs) Some may think it's harsh to curse Ham's son. Uh, and I would agree, but, but many see this as, and this is part of where this gets hard to figure out, but many see what Noah woke up and said as, as him simply telling what would happen in his anger. Not, not that him declaring that curse actually was a causation, but more of a, a prophecy of what was to come. Noah clearly had a close uh, relationship with God. He may have foreseen. The, we know that actually it was Canaan's uh, descendants that ended up being pushed out of the promised land when God's people went through the exodus and, and the time in the wilderness and then came back and kicked them out and they're all worshiping Baal and Molech. They totally abandoned God. So many think that Noah, basically in his anger, just, you ever, have you ever like overpunished your kids? Like they just finally struck that last nerve and, nerve and you're like, you're grounded for a decade, right? Then you're like, you got to pull it back. Like, well, uh, I can't actually stick to that. So, um, Go to your room for 10 minutes, and then we'll talk. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> I th- that's kind of, that's what some people think, kind of think happened here. Uh, Noah woke up, you know, maybe still hungover, who knows, and just in his anger, he starts t- saying stuff he knows is going to happen that he maybe wouldn't have said, because, you know, nobody wants to be the grandpa saying like, hey, grandson, you're never going to amount to anything, and all your descendants are going to suck. But he got ticked off, and that's, so that's, that's the way many theologians see it. There are those that think that, Noah declares this curse, and that, so, so that's why it happened. I, I tend to think in, in the other camp. I, I digress. Again, this is super tough. It's a super tough passage, and there is some ambiguity, okay? So just want to say that. Um, is there any hope for us in these verses? There, there is much here in the way of warning and correction, but is there any glimmer of, of the gospel here? I, I would say yes in at least two ways. First of all, Noah sinned greatly here. He not only got drunk and naked, but he opened the door for his son to sin as well. This, that part arguing, arguably being the greater of the two offenses, that he put Ham in a position to sin. This was toward the end of his life. And yet, because he had received God's favor as a result of his faith, this is how the book of Hebrews summarizes the life of Noah. Hebrews 11.7, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Even after all Noah had seen and heard and experienced with God, he still fell on his face in humiliating sin. And yet... Forgiveness and mercy and grace were available for him. Noah falling down like this didn't, did not determine his destiny. And friend, the same is true for you and the same is true for me today. And I praise God that that's accurate because I've been on my face many times, humiliated by my own stupidity and foolishness. I'm thankful that that doesn't mean God's done with me. The story is not over. Redemption and forgiveness are possible because of God's grace. And there's also something else here. It's, it's a bit more hidden than that, but it's beautiful to behold. Uh, Ham 
Ham did not walk in love in his response to his father's sin, but his brothers did. 1 Peter 4.8 says this, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Brother Andrew was just teaching us today there's possibly 4,000 allusions to the Old Testament and the New Testament. I hear an echo. Look for those because it'll unlock beauty in the scriptures that will blow your mind. Shem and Japheth took a garment and they walked backwards to honor their father to cover his nakedness and the shame of his sin. Many generations later, a descendant of Shem would allow himself to be stripped naked and be put to shame so that our shame and our sin could be covered. Let me read you this from the prophet Isaiah. This is 61.10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Friends, Jesus is a better Shem. He didn't just lay a garment over our sin. He has taken our sin and cast it as far as the east is from the west. He didn't just give us a garment for our nakedness and shame. He gave us his robes of righteousness to wear. And this is why throughout the scriptures, the blood of Jesus is said to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, if that wasn't true, we would, we would soil those perfect white robes. If all Jesus did was do what Shem and Japheth did, if he just gave us his robes, man, we, if we're still filthy, we would soil those robes if all he did was give us new garments. But he doesn't just give us clean new garments. He makes us clean and new. And he makes us able to wear those beautiful robes we never could have earned for ourselves without ruining them. Jesus is a better Shem and a better Japheth. And I hope, taking all that into account, that we can join Isaiah in declaring, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. May we be a people who are both honest and humble in the way we judge ourselves and others. May we be a people who are brokenhearted over all sin, whether it is ours or someone else's. And may we be a people who rejoice forevermore that we have had Christ's perfect garments laid across our shoulders, that we are saved by grace through faith for our good and for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. We thank you for these scriptures in Genesis 9. We thank you for this account. I thank you again, Lord, that the scriptures are not whitewashed, that you did not airbrush these. Noah, this great man of faith, if somebody was making this stuff up, I would think the drunken stupor would have been removed. And yet it's there. It's there. It's staring us in the face and it's teaching us so much about us and it teaches us so much about you. Thank you that when we fall on our faces in humiliating sin, that you're not done with us, that you don't reject us, but the promise stands true that if we will confess our sins and repent, if we will stand upon grace through faith, that redemption, forgiveness, and mercy is available for us. Thank you that even though towards the end of Noah's life he failed miserably, 
sinned against you, sinned against his son. Lord, you did not reject him and you allowed him to be remembered in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith, a righteous man by grace. Thank you, Lord. This is all of our story. This is our story, each one of us. We've all fallen far short of perfection. We've all, in various degrees of embarrassing ways, shamed ourselves, shamed our families, shamed your name. And yet, God, you're gentle with us. You restore us gently. You take those beautiful robes. You cover our shame and our nakedness. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you allowed yourself to be stripped naked, to be put to shame, so that my shame could be covered. Thank you for taking my place. Thank you for being a better Shem. Thank you for following in the footsteps of your descendant. And God, help us to please follow after you. Help us, when we see others in sin, to come to them and to restore them gently, to speak truth and grace to them, to be willing to apply love to their sin, that it would not cover them and keep them from accountability, but that it would, it would take away their shame. Help us to walk with people in such a way that they will be encouraged and strengthened, and they will not shrink back from you or shrink back from God's people because of shame and because of sin. Lord, help us to be better at this. We declare that we have failed at this oftentimes. We have stood off in judgment, sometimes because of our insecurity. We have reveled in the fact that someone else fell. And God, we confess that sin to you now as your people. We repent and we ask for your forgiveness. God, please help us to walk in love in every single situation, in all that we do, in every area of our life, because it is what you require. It is what you've called us to. It is the high call. And we want to answer it. We need your help to do it, Lord. We love you. We worship you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.